This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, January 3rd. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Rob Bluey. Happy New Year. We're so glad to be kicking off the Daily Signal podcast for 2022 with a conversation featuring Irv Dennis. He's the former chief financial officer at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development and author of a new book, Transforming a Federal Agency, Management Lessons from HUD's Financial Reconstruction. We also read your letters to the editor and share a good news story about how one organization is changing the lives of women experiencing crisis pregnancies. As we begin the new year together, Virginia and I want to tell you about our favorite way to get the news every morning. It's called the Morning Bell, and each weekday, the Daily Signal delivers the top news and commentary directly to your inbox for free. You'll be able to read about the policy debates shaping the agenda, analysis from Heritage Foundation experts, and commentary from leading conservatives like Ben Shapiro, Dennis Prager, and Kel Thomas. It's easy to sign up. Just visit DailySignal.com and click on the Connect button in the top right corner of the page. We'll start sending you the morning bell tomorrow. Now stay tuned for today's show, coming up next. We are joined on the Daily Signal podcast by Irving Dennis. He's the former chief financial officer at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development and the author of a new book, Transforming a Federal Agency, Management Lessons from HUD's Financial Reconstruction. Irv, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to our conversation. Well, I've had the opportunity to interview Dr. Ben Carson, HUD's former secretary, twice on this program, and I've heard stories from him and others about the reforms at HUD. So before we dive in, just take a moment to explain to us what HUD is, who uh, who it serves, and uh, your role there. So HUD is a uh, cabinet-level agency, as, as you know, and we primarily serve to make sure that there's affordable housing to, uh, to to the underserved, if you will. It's a very complex organization. There are, I guess, about 40 different uh, programs, Rob, and it also includes FHA and Ginny Mae, which supports the the housing markets for uh, for the for those in need. Um, it's a complex agency. Um, I was brought aboard to assist in the reconstructing their financial infrastructure, if you will. They they were without a CFO for a lot of years, and they had a lot of material weaknesses, and I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to work with uh, Secretary Carson in helping transform, uh, transform the agency from a financial standpoint as well as from a, a, a digital and IT modernization standpoint. Irv, let's go back to 2018. What was the situation like there when you first arrived? So when I arrived, um, they had not had a CFO of serious consequence for about eight years. There was a person that the, the prior administration had nominated, uh, unfortunately uh, passed away in office, and they had not replaced this. So it was basically without a CFO. And without a CFO, you saw a deterioration in their financial infrastructure. They had nine material weaknesses. They had four disclaimers in the audit. And it's not to bore the audience with (laughs) the definition of material weaknesses and disclaimers. But think of it as 13 areas in the financial infrastructure that could not be audited and they did not have significant or controls in place to properly account for uh, for the uh, for the flow of funds through the agency. 
Um, in addition, there are multiple financial reporting aspects that come out of the federal government between the GONE Act and the, the Data Act and other financial reports that uh, HUD was not in compliance uh, with. Uh, so basically, think of it as all the financial reporting that's required of a cabinet-level agency, uh, HUD was not in compliance with any of them. So, um, you know, it's interesting when you think about that compared to the private sector. And, uh, you know, I spent 37 years with Ernst & Young, so I had a strong sense of, and I was an audit partner with uh, with uh, Ernst & Young, so I have a strong sense of financial controls and financial discipline and, and what excellent looks like in that area. And HUD just wasn't in compliance with any of it. So I knew we had a, uh, a big hill to climb to to transform the agency from from um, from uh, getting the financial infrastructure in place that you would expect of a large agency. Well, Irv, I'm curious how it got so bad uh, to the point that you just described, but also how you were able to transform this massive government department in just a few short years. Yeah, it's a good question. And my book addresses a lot of that. Uh, my book does go through the complexity of HUD. Um, and, uh, you know, my book talks about what qualified me for the, the position. And when you think about how it did get this bad, bad, I do dedicate a chapter to that. And I think of two broad things, the, 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 the lack of leadership, you know, without a CFO at the helm driving financial excellence, uh, you, you will see a deterioration in, uh, in the infrastructure. That happens in the private sector as well. And, and that's sort of what happened at, at HUD. Um, the, the other big difference is there's, um, you know, there's really a sort of a lack of accountability. In the private sector, if you have material weaknesses in areas that are, you can't audit uh, and you have disclaimers in the audit, uh, the, 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 um, your shareholders and the, the other stakeholders of that private entity would, does not allow that to happen. You've got to get that fixed pretty quick or else you'll lose the, you, you lose the confidence of those folks and they will not invest or support the entity. I, you know, you don't have that. That dynamic is different in federal government. Um, the, the, you know, there's plenty of oversight between the GAO, Congress, and OMB, but there's really no teeth to force accountability. So I think with the lack of leadership and the lack of accountability, um, the deterioration happened and, and was there. And, and your question of how do you make that switch and how do you turn it around? It's a good question, and I spent a lot of time on that in the book. That's, and I, I think it of a ten-stage process. Um, you know, we we had leadership. I, I brought the um, the discipline of a vision and how to fix it and how to transform it. So we uh, we had leadership, and I spent a lot of time. And when I was in the private sector as an audit partner, I spent a lot of time evaluating governance, evaluating people, process, and technology. And within those four areas, if all of those are working well in a, in a private company, um, they will work, the, the company works well. You've got a good discipline, uh, you've got good financial infrastructure, you have good controls, and you have confidence that all of the wheels are, are turning properly. So I spent a lot of time studying governance, people, process, and technology while in my first 100 days, and quite frankly, all those areas needed homework. So once I uh, spent some time learning the business, developing relationships, developing my own credibility, and working closely with uh, with our people within the CFO shop, we put a governance process in place. Uh, like I mentioned, HUD has about 40 different programs, FHA and Ginny May, and everyone is working in a bit of a silo. So most important thing I did initially was break down those silos and have everyone working together 
you know, with one HUD in mind versus everyone operating their own individual businesses. Uh, we spent a lot of time on improving uh, uh, process. We spent a lot of time on the technology side. We we introduced uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, the digital analytics, digital analysis, and brought in some of the uh, IT modernization that you see in the private sector. We brought that to bear at, at HUD. Uh, we spent a lot of time on the people side, uh, trying to have people think differently about what HUD HUD can be by introducing these new uh, these new processes and a new concept, and it was actually ended up being quite successful. Uh, we spent a lot of time on the audit process. Uh, we, you know, there was a real disconnect between a working relationship between the uh, the auditors and 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 HUD. I spent a lot of time making sure that relationship was improved, and that was also a big part of our, our success. We also spent a lot of time on uh, enterprise fraud and risk management. That was a, an area that uh, needed some homework, and we had a great team in place, and putting that discipline uh, throughout HUD was, was also very uh, helpful to us. Irv, you mentioned your role. You spent 37 years at Ernst & Young, a major accounting firm. It seems that an important part of this transformation was your own background in the private sector. What did that experience teach you about transforming HUD? Yeah, it's a good question, um, uh, Rob. Um, and I actually addressed this in, in my book. Before I took the role, uh, my, my initial interview with the chief of staff and, and Secretary Carson, uh, I had just retired. I was running 130 miles an hour for 37 years. I was actually scheduled to teach at OSU. I live out in Columbus, Ohio. And I didn't think I wanted to jump into something as full-time as a CFO of a complicated cabinet-level agency. Um, but um, they kept calling uh, every few weeks, and I talk about this in, in the book, the process of getting into, uh, into the, uh, the role. And I really did some soul searching, you know, am I qualified to to jump into this role and make a real difference? And, you know, at, at, at Ernst & Young, spending 37 years, I worked on large public companies. Uh, some of my my uh, clients that I was a coordinating partner on included McDonald's and Abbott Labs and large global companies. So when you're an audit partner, you do develop an awful lot of knowledge on business processes on business technology, financial controls, internal controls, and corporate governance. So I felt confident after some reflection that my experience at EY uh, prepared me to step into a CFO role and, and really make a difference and, and help turn the agency around. Uh, public accounting and, and, and the big four accounting firms and, and even the big 10 accounting firms really do prepare you for uh, taking on bigger roles outside of the, the audit profession. And um, so my, my experience of understanding governance, understanding financial excellence, if you will, was, was, uh, gave me the confidence to do this. You mentioned how you were not necessarily eager to jump into a, a complicated situation like this, and yet Dr. Carson must have persuaded you uh, to come out of retirement to take this job. Was there a particular motivation, public service, serving a noble uh, individual and, and HUD secretary like him that uh, that ultimately decided you decided that it was worth your time and investment? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I also discussed that in the uh, the book, too. And, and 
my goal in retirement was to do meaningful work and, and give back. I, I grew up with very humble beginnings and uh, I really enjoyed my career and it was, uh, it, it provided myself and my family a lot through the last 37 years. So I really wanted to give back and do meaningful work. And, and that's what teaching was going to be at, at Ohio state. But meeting with Secretary Carson and, and his vision and his calm demeanor and his very intellectual way, um, he said, we have an opportunity here to make a difference in the American lives. And he came out of retirement to do this as well. And that was very inspirational to me. Um, so every time he called, uh, the juices flowed a little bit. And my wife uh, said, Every time they call, I, I see the excitement in your eyes. So let's just make this happen. So she, she gave me the permission to come out of retirement. And um, in working with the team, it was a great team. And um, just being around him is very inspirational. And it, uh, and he actually, you know, he gave me the courage. He said, you'll bring a lot of great experience here. And, and uh, we'll, we'll all work together and make a big difference. And then that's sort of what happened. He's a great man. I had the opportunity to see him yeah. just a couple of weeks ago on the Armstrong Williams show. And uh, and I still look up to him as as somebody who is a great, uh, great public servant and has really, you know, done an enormous uh, amount of good for for Americans and our country as a result of not only his service at, at, under President Trump, but prior to that uh, as a brain surgeon. Yeah. Um, Irv, let me ask you this, because Others have said that these problems that you were trying to address just couldn't be fixed. I'm curious, when you arrived at HUD, what was the culture like there, maybe among the civil servants or some of the other political appointees you were serving with? Yeah, I, you know, I think the culture was was such of uh, everyone kind of doing their own thing in their own silos, and each program operated on its own. I would say the morale in the CFO office was 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 low. I mean, they felt like they were getting beat up on for for several years. And you know, I my and I said to our team, I said, look, we, we're getting the CFOs taking all the heat, but a lot of these issues stem from the uh, the programs, controls, and processes. And you know, the programs were doing their own thing without any real oversight from the CFO office. So. Uh, I, you know, part of the transformation that I talk about in in the uh, in the book is having strong governance and strong oversight. And you know, I I said to our CFO team, we need to have a controllership function like you would in the private sector that oversees each of the programs, FHA and Jenny May. And we need to be working together. And if 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 they're making changes within their business processes or the controls. Uh, the CFO shop needs to be aware of that and almost approve it and make sure that the numbers are being rolled up properly with proper accounting. So it was really the governance and this and giving the CFO team the confidence to go out and have that oversight and be able to make those decisions and and uh, and provide that working relationship was a big part of the uh, big part of the success. So. You know, and also getting everyone to think differently about IT modernization and, and bringing in robotic RPA, robotic process uh, programs, and 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 doing the IT modernization that goes on in the private sector was very helpful to us. And you know, we started small. We had an RPA process that uh, we we took a an accrual or accounting process that took 
2,200 hours. We applied some robotics to it, and it uh, brought that down to 65 hours. So we had 2,100 hours that we could devote to to uh, improving other processes versus just moving uh, numbers around. And once we planted that seed within our team, you could see the energy start, and you can see people's mind start to explode with ideas of how we can make this more more efficient and better and effective. And uh, that was uh, that created a lot of energy within the CFO office. That was was exciting to see. So, you know, the, the morale was low at first, and um, we got that turned around in three and a half years. You write in the book, which is called Transforming a Federal Agency, about some of the roadblocks you faced at HUD. It clearly wasn't easy mm-hmm. to overcome some of the bureaucratic barriers, as you've just explained to us. <laughs> Looking back right. now, what are you most proud of accomplishing? I think a couple of things. I am probably most proud of um, changing the culture in a way that people were energized to to work. We took our employee survey scores, which the government monitors pretty closely, and the CFO shop was was really low. It was it was uh, the lower quadrant of the federal agencies at large, and it was almost it was last at HUD. And by the time we finished in my final year, we were leading at HUD, and we were also in the upper quadrant of uh, of the measures that that the federal government monitors. So that change in morale was really, really uh, something I was very proud of, and proud of our team. Um, I think we also changed the um, the the mindset of uh, people thinking differently and knowing what can be. Um, and getting a clean audit opinion for the first time in in eight years was something I was also very proud of. And, and the reason that is because it just gives people within the CFO shop and HUD at large a feeling of pride that um, their work mattered. Uh, we were able to make changes and you just feel better about your work when when uh, you get good you get a good scorecard at the end of the day you bet yeah absolutely now several years ago or if i covered the epa's creation of an office of continuous improvement that's the environmental protection mm-hmm. agency i'm just right. curious was there any competition among federal agencies during the trump administration when it came to improving their performance and doing the things you were able to do at hud you know, it's a it's a good question. Um, I I don't know the answer to that from a standpoint of I was so laser focused on what we were doing at HUD that we were starting at the very bottom of the 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 the, uh, the ladder, and we needed to get us to one an even keel with other agencies. And then if when we did the IT modernization, maybe that put us a it became a leading or best practice in many of our processes and procedures. Um, so I don't know that I felt necessarily competitive, but I, I, I was really focused on improving HUD and getting us to where I knew uh, knew they could be, where they could be. Now, you were recognized for your accomplishments, winning awards, now writing this book about where you were able to to go and, uh, and improve things. Uh, but my question is, will the changes you made stick. Uh, so often we hear about the good work that was done only to have the next administration come in and undo it. So what's the outlook today? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I actually did dedicate a chapter to the book on, you know, what makes it sustainable. And, you know, it's uh, every time you reach a, reach your goal, you've got to think about the next thing and keep moving and keep improving. 
Um, so making a sustainable starts, in my view, uh, and I, like I mentioned, I do address this in the uh, in the book. Um, keeping the governance structure in place, and that can be difficult in government because unlike the private sector where the, the executive team and the leadership team doesn't change that often, you'll have a change of a CEO, you'll have a change of a couple of board members, you may have a change of a CFO, but by and large, the culture is there, the strategy is there, and you know, 90% of the leadership team is there. And government's very different. You've got a different dynamic in that every four to eight years, you're wiping out all of the politicals and all the leadership team. You're coming in with perhaps a new agenda and a new strategy. So uh, the governance structure, keeping that in place or getting it ramped up quickly, I think is is uh, very important to making it sustainable. Um, I think the controllership function with the oversight from the CFO office, which can be done at the career level, I think is very important to keep in place. Um, you know, I think the the developing the workforce of the future is really important within government at large, not just at HUD. Uh, I, I do think in the private sector, the workforce is a little more ahead of the government workforce in in um, in, the, in getting ready for this digital age that we're in. Um, continuing the program of uh, the RPA and the digitalization is very important uh, to continue the progress. Uh, we we used the Shared Service Center. We improved that while I was there. I think there's more opportunity to utilize the Shared Service Center that comes out of Treasury. Um, that'll be very important to expand that. We were doing a lot of customer experience and call center to make it easier for the people that we serve to work with HUD. Uh, there was more work to do in that area, and I hope that continues. Um, and then the whole data analysis and analytics and uh, those initiatives, I, I think, will be really important to continue. And if I, you know, I, I my uh, my team was aware of the, the vision and the, the roadmap, um, and I. I'm hopeful that that will continue, and but I do dedicate a chapter to that in transforming a federal agency in my book because I think it is so important that you know some of that infrastructure stuff is just hopefully gets embedded into the process that doesn't uh, doesn't fall apart later on. Well, Irv, as we as we wrap up here, would you encourage people to take a job in government if if based on your experience and if they did follow in your footsteps, what advice do you have for them? You know, um, I actually spend a lot of time um, in my book talking about opportunities working inside the uh, inside federal government, and uh, I'm sort of embarrassed to say this that it uh, I wasn't expecting the quality and the dedication of the federal workforce uh, to the mission at hand. Uh, there are a tremendous amount of smart people. The people work very hard. It's a story that doesn't get told too often, so I spent a lot of time in my book talking about that. I would encourage anyone that has an appetite to and a desire to work inside the, uh, the federal government to do so. Um, and I think of it myself that if I had spent two or three years working in the executive branch, understanding how uh, laws are passed, how policy is made, and how the regulatory environment works, I would have been a better advisor to my clients. And then conversely, if everyone in government on the infrastructure side had two or three years in the private sector knowing what financial excellence looks like, I think our government would be better. 
Um, but I, I uh, spent a lot of time talking to college students, and I, I put onto my agenda speaking about the opportunities in the federal government. There's not a industry that's not touched by government. Uh, you can move around pretty easily within agencies. Uh, so I think it's a tremendous career opportunity. And, and I didn't have that perspective before I uh, went into uh, and, uh, before I uh, before I worked at, at HUD. But I certainly do now, and I've become a big fan of um, what a meaningful career path it could be working inside of government. Thank you for your public service, sir. We we appreciate it. And finally, you're now working at the American Cornerstone Institute with Dr. Carson again. Uh, can you tell our listeners about the organization and how they can learn more about it? Sure. So uh, we have a tremendous uh, website. It's called American Cornerstone Institute, as you said. Uh, Secretary Carson uh, wanted to set up this not-for-profit uh, to promote the principles of uh, of our founding fathers and of our nation, and have the discussion in a uh, in a nonpartisan civil way. And the the pillars are faith, liberty, community, and life. And uh, we have a great website that uh, talks about our programs and what we're doing. And there's about six or seven of us from HUD that are working with Secretary Carson on this. And we want to. Where we're, we're not only doing op-eds and uh, quarterstone conversations with talk about matters that are important in today's society within our four pillars, but we're also developing educational programs. Uh, we started a Little Patriots, which is uh, educational programs for kindergarten through fifth grade, um, and we'll, we'll expand that as we as we grow. Um, and again, it's talking about uh, why America matters and, and promoting founding principles of our nation. Uh, we're also working on a program within our more perfect union agenda. And what we're doing there is we're developing a college certification course to educate people that are interested in the executive branch. You know, talking about the, uh, the, the confirmation process, talking about getting a job within the executive branch, talking about how the executive branch interacts with the legislation and judicial branch. So we're excited about that, and we'll be launching that sometime in uh, early spring of next year. But it's a great group of people. We're working hard. It's been a, We had a very successful first year, and AmericanCornerstoneInstitute.com, uh, and you'll, you'll, uh, you can see all about what we're doing and, and uh, where we are. Irv Dennis, thanks so much for your leadership, not only there today, but also in the past at HUD. Um, I certainly appreciate learning more about how you were able to transform this big government agency. Again, the book is called Transforming a Federal Agency Management Lessons from HUD's Financial Reconstruction. We'll be sure to leave a link in both the transcript and the show notes for any listeners who would like to learn more about it. Irv, thanks so much. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer healthcare choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at heritage.org. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show. Virginia, who's up first? In response to Victor Davis Hansen's piece, The Woke Got What They Wanted, and Then What? Dennis Evans writes, Dear Daily Signal, I thoroughly enjoyed your recent article focusing on the woke. Recently, I read a bumper sticker message. I'm a Marine. 
who misses the country in which I grew up. I personally honor that serviceman and all our men and women who have served or are currently serving in our country's armed forces. Even though our Constitution allows for freedom of expression, I am so very sick and tired of those elected officials who think that wokeism is the quintessential approach to right our country's wrongs. Suppression of law and order only leads to crime increase. Disobedience to law begets anarchy and mob rule. In our civilized democratic republic, ample provision is provided for change in law and order by peaceful means at the ballot box and in the public square where issues should be discussed and debated vigorously in a common atmosphere of respect and restraint. No one who offers a diametrically opposed viewpoint should be in fear of losing limb or life or being canceled. Hopefully, with wise perspective from the past and present, we can move forward with a dedicated resolve to ensure a positive and productive future for our United States of America. And in response to my piece, Education Lifted Me Out of Poverty, Winsome Sears Wants to Reform Schools and Power Parents, Carol Beam of Virginia writes, Dear Daily Signal, I just read your article on Lieutenant Governor-elect Winsome Sears and her views on education empowering parents, school choice, curriculum redirection to the basics and meritocracy. How refreshing to see Sears and Governor-elect Glenn Youngkin's common-sense approach to improving student academic performance. We in Virginia are very proud and expect tremendous improvements. Your letter could be featured on next week's show. So if you haven't done so already, go ahead and send us an email at letters at dailysignal.com. We're all guilty of it, spending too much time on the Internet watching silly videos. But it's the 21st century, and maybe it's time for a change. At the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel, you'll find videos that both entertain and educate, including virtual events featuring the biggest names in American politics, original explainers and documentaries, and heritage experts diving deep on topics like election integrity, China, and other threats to our democracy, all brought to you by the nation's most broadly supported Public Policy Research Institute. Start watching now at heritage.org slash YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe and share. Virginia, as always, you have a good news story to kick off our week. Over to you. Thanks so much, Rob. It is great to be back and kicking off 2022 with some good news here on the podcast. And, you know, as we think about what lies ahead of us in 2022, one of the most significant issues may just be protecting life. In December, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments for a case that could ultimately overturn Roe versus Wade. We will likely find out the justice's decision in June on that case. But if Roe v. Wade is overturned, many moms facing crisis pregnancy situations, they're going to need help and support. Moms like Michaela, who at the age of 18 found out she was pregnant, her boyfriend and her father pressured her to have an abortion. When she decided that she didn't want to abort her baby, her father kicked her out of the house. In a video for Mary's Shelter, Michaela says she wrestled throughout her pregnancy with excitement and with fear. Some days I'd be taking a walk and like smiling, thinking about what my baby would be like and um, the future I could have. And then at the same time, like some days I'd be like bawling on the ground because uh, I didn't know if anyone would support me. 
Through a Catholic church in Chantilly, Virginia, Michaela learned about a house for moms in need called Mary's Shelter in Fredericksburg, Virginia. The mission of Mary's Shelter is to affirm the dignity of every human life and that life begins at conception. Current or expectant mothers are invited to live at the home for up to three years and are given tools and resources to get back on their feet and receive education and life skill training. I was so afraid coming here that it would be like rumors of shelters that I had heard. Um, but the fact that I have my own private room, it's really like a house like anyone else is staying in. The Daily Signal recently spoke with Michaela, and she said that what women in a crisis pregnancy like me need the most is safety, but also the feeling of safety. It's not enough that you are safe, that you are in a shelter. It was important for me after I moved in that I felt accepted and emotionally cared for and protected by the community that I was in. Michaela gave birth to a healthy baby daughter named Amy, and both mother and baby are doing well. Kathleen Wilson is the founder of Mary's Shelter, an organization that uh, first began in 2006 and has now helped over 400 women just like Michaela. Kathleen says Mary's Shelter is so unique because the program doesn't separate women from community, but instead provides a safe place for them to restart their lives. They actually live in the community. They don't feel like they're separated. They are living in a community. They're around neighbors that have children and they're riding their bikes and they have babies and they're strolling around. And so they see that this is the way America is. This is the way your life should be. Kathleen says that at Mary's Shelter, we defy that untruth that we only care about the baby in the womb. We love the baby, born and unborn, and we love the woman. If you want to learn more about Mary's Shelter and how you can support the work that they are doing, you can visit MarySheltervA.org. Virginia, thanks so much for sharing that story about Mary's Shelter. We hope our listeners do check it out and do what they can to support that great work. We're going to leave it there for today. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on the Ricochet Audio Network. All of our shows are available at dailysignal.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to listen every weekday by adding the Daily Signal podcast as part of your Alexa flash briefing. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and a five-star rating. It means a lot to us and helps us spread the word to other listeners. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. Have a great week. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.